Lane Show. Exclusive interviews, fun, music, celebrities. Your weekend getaway. Now, here's Mulberry Lane, Rachel, Bo, and Ellie Cat. Be a part of the family. Hey, it's Rachel here with your radio sisters, Bo and Allie. And it's time for the Mulberry Lane Show. Well, great to have you with us along for the musical journey today. You're in for a great ride with a couple of twists and turns. That's right, Allie. And we're so happy you meet us here every weekend for your dose of music, arts, and lifestyle here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Mm-hmm. We're going to turn up the heat with the guests stopping by today. Here's the list. The Mulberry Lane Show's on Celebrity story songs You're gonna have it going on When we tell you who's stopping by now Up first, Jeff Hanna of Nitty Gritty Dirt Band Well, this band who recorded songs like Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles Dance And Fishing in the Dark You and me go fishing in the dark Well, they have continued to have hits and they're celebrating 50 years in music. Now, this band has always been on tour and never officially broken up. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. And today you're going to hear stories from Jeff about the writing and recording of the song Fishing in the Dark. And FYI, that song has become the most played country song on radio of all time. And how do you even go about writing a song like that, right? Exactly. And you're going to also hear about the recording of the 1972 Will the Circle Be Unbroken album. And this one is the one that was inducted into the U.S. Library of Congress in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Pretty iconic stuff. Yes, Rachel. Finally, if you've ever wondered if something you did over 10 years ago will finally get the acclaim it deserves, meet the song Broken Road. Jeff tells about the long, winding path that took this song that he wrote to a Grammy win. Recorded by Rascal Flatts. Yeah, long winding path for that song, and Jeff Hanna is definitely one mega talent. What's up next, Allie? Well, then it's New York Times bestselling and Edgar Award winning author John Hart, and you're going to hear about his latest thriller, The Hush. And if you're one of those people that's always on the go and you don't have a lot of time to read, this bestseller is now available as an audiobook as well. So you can get all the thrill of this thriller while you're on the go. You'll also hear about how his characters often inform him on what's going to happen in their lives. Kind of like how your own kids do that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so you're going to have a good time with John today, and you're going to crawl into the mind of a best-selling novelist. Who else, sisters? Well, next up is singer-songwriter Peggy Young, and you're going to be intrigued with the background to this album. Trying to live my life without you, is the hardest thing I'll ever do Trying to get the love we once shared Is the hardest burden I'll ever bear the title of the album is Raw, which tells a lot about what Peggy has been going through. After many years of marriage to music legend Neil Young, she found herself a few years ago divorced alone and reinventing herself. So what's a musician to do? Turn to music 
of course, which is exactly what she did with two legendary musicians and dear friends of hers, Spooner Oldham and Kelvin Holly. Now, all three of them are joining your weekend to give you the scoop on the friendship and love that led to this album. Yes, and in spite of the heartbreak that brought on this album, the album exudes a positivity. So you guys are going to dig that today. Okay, guys, before we go to break, I don't know about you, but this time of year is so busy with all the graduations, confirmations, first communions, weddings. There's so many actually gift buying opportunities, including our nephew who made his confirmation last weekend. And this weekend, my son Luke is making his first communion along with Bo's daughter, Giselle. That's right. And throughout all of this, my go-to spot for personalized gifts has been Etsy, and I found some pretty amazing stuff out there. Yes, you got to talk about the gift you got for Drew's confirmation. So as some of you may know, every year my sisters and I sing an hour-long acapella Christmas Eve concert. And ever since I was a little girl, I have always done the pum-pum-pums in the song The Little Dermot Boy. So our nephew Drew, who is our sister Jamie's son, he's in eighth grade and he's turning out to be like a really great drummer. So I tried to find a gift that kind of had that drum connection. So my friend Sandy Kimmy has a store on Etsy where she makes these personalized canvases. So I decided to have her put on canvas. I played my best for him, which I thought was the perfect line from the Little Drummer Boy to be appropriate for a confirmation and kind of connect this drumming thing. Sandy did a beautiful job with the canvas. Turned out to be great. And for this weekend, I ordered off of Etsy cake toppers for both Luke and Giselle's cakes that say Luke's First Communion and Giselle's First Communion in gold. So I'm having a lot of fun. All I can say, Allie, is you must have been inspired by the Etsy trend expert that was a guest on the show. Mm -hmm. When she said you can find just about any personalized gift on Etsy. Wow, I was in Etsy personalization heaven. I'm looking forward to my birthday gift now. (laughs) Beware. (laughs) Okay, well, after this short break, you're going to hear from Jeff Hanna with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. So stay right where you are and get ready for some fishing in the dark. (laughs) And keep it right here with your radio sisters on The Mulberry. Meet the celebrities on your radio station. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Celebrating 50 years in the music business, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band has definitely made their mark. With hits like Mr. Bojangles and Fishing in the Dark, they've solidified their place in music history. And founding member Jeff Hanna is here to talk about the 50th anniversary tour. And of course, you're going to hear about the music, too. 50 years, Jeff Hanna is here, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Hey, that was pretty. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Nice to be talking to you all. Great to have you with us. Now, it's pretty unusual to have a band that's been together for 50 years that has never broken up and nearly constantly touring. So what's the secret? Well, I think the biggest secret is having a fan base. And we've been really fortunate in that regard. We've been doing this for years and years, and our fans, they're passionate. Now they're bringing their kids, and their kids are bringing their kids. So (laughs) there you go. So what do you think it is that they connected with the music? Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Mr. Bojangles, and I think initially when that song was a hit, which was in the early 70s, 
that sort of generation of fans was into the country rock that we were playing, like the Will the Circle Being Broken album as yeah. well. And of course, Mr. Bojangles and the album, that was on Uncle Charlie. Uh-huh. And then later on, cut forward like 20 years, and then we had Fishing in the Dark became a hit. Right. And then we got a whole other generation of fans, and that song has really stuck around. Somebody told me the other day that it's one of the most played recurrent radio songs in country music, which I think is really awesome. That yeah. is a magic song, for sure. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. And so rare that a big hit lives on and does continue to get airplay. That doesn't happen very often. Number one, it's a great song, and it was written by a buddy of ours, Jim Photoglow, who's actually on the road with the band playing bass. Oh, that's great. And I understand he did not want to write a song about fishing. Is that right? That's exactly right. He and Wendy Waldman wrote that tune. Also, uh, Josh Leo, who produced that record, the recording of that single is so fresh sounding yeah. Yeah. that it sounds like it was recorded last week instead mm-hmm. of 25 years ago. Yeah. You know? I think that's one of the reasons that it, it's kind of hung around. Now, when you were recording that song, did you have a feeling about the song or was it just another song you were recording? No. When Josh came over to my house and he played the demo, his little cassette that he had with him back then, and I said, play that again, will you? About three hours later, I'm still going, play that again, will you? Okay. So, you know, we couldn't get enough of it. You know, I kind of went through a six-pack of beer and we were laughing and jumping around the room going, I think the band's going to love this song. So uh. we're all songwriters, and we've all had a hand in writing a lot of the Dirt Band's more familiar material over the years. Uh-huh. But when we're looking for something for the Dirt Band, we're always looking for something that's a really good fit, that sounds like we wrote it. And that passed all those qualifications and then some. So, uh, okay, so were you drinking beer in the studio? studio recording that? No. 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 Tell you the truth, nah. Uh, okay. That kind of gets in the way of the music for us. Okay. After we're done, sure. Okay. But not, <laughs> but not there in the studio. <laughs> Jeff Hanna from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band is here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Okay, now Will the Circle Be Unbroken album, the 1972 one, that was inducted into the U.S. Library of Congress and the Grammy Hall of Fame. So talk yep. about how that idea came about to approach, you know, the old timers and and get all that together. We did a concert at Vanderbilt University in Nashville in late 1970, and Earl Scruggs and his family came to the show, which was great, because he was one of our heroes, and that was that generational thing again, where, Mm -hmm. you know, his kids loved the sort of more rockin' material that we were doing, and Earl was really impressed with the way we played bluegrass, and particularly the way John McKinnon played the banjo. Okay. from our band. So we got to talking about maybe some point doing some recording together. And in the meanwhile, Bill McEwen, who was our producer at the time, John McEwen's brother, okay. he was our manager as well, he came up with this idea. How would you guys feel about making a record not only with Earl, but also we put a wish list together. We started talking about the heroes that we all had in common, Doc Watson, Merle Travis, Mother Maybell Carter, Roy Acuff, Jimmy Martin, and got to give John a lot of credit. He and I went to see Earl Scruggs play in Boulder, Colorado, which is where we were living, right outside of Denver. Okay. Then. Mm-hmm. And John was the one that popped a question, you know, and that got the ball rolling. Okay. Uh-huh. And then the next week, John went to see Doc Watson play, and as John tells us, it's great. He says, well, I told Doc that we were doing an album with Earl. Oh. <laughs> Got that, yes. And Doc's son, Merle, again, was a fan of our band. You know? okay. So that really helped. And yeah, and then the thing, we all convened 
in Nashville in August of 1971 and spent about a week hanging out with all those folks and rehearsing tunes and got in the studio and recorded the whole thing in six days. That had to be a pretty special time. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. We had a great time. We had just relocated from Southern California to the Rocky Mountains. Okay. So going down to Tennessee, you know, John had been to Tennessee once as a kid, but the rest of us had never even been in the South. So it was a little bit of a, you know, culture, culture shock. shock. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it is interesting because those folks didn't look like us because we were a bunch of shaggy, long-haired hippies right. from the West Coast. Yeah. So there was sort of this cultural gap. But as soon as we started playing music, it all disappeared. Yeah. All the preconceptions just... Melted you know, away. Yeah. Melted away. Thank you. Yeah. You got a good way to do it. See, I, I need to radio. come with you. <laughs> you can tell she has sisters because she's used to finishing I'm our heard. sentences. I'm used to finishing my sister's sentences, so you must there just you blend go. right in. So, <laughs> now, is it true that Bill Monroe refused to participate? Yeah, he did. I think it had less to do with him. I think he just didn't think that his fans would understand okay. him making a record with a rock and roll band. That's what we were. So mm-hmm. the good news was is that we got to play on several occasions with Bill on stage later in okay. his life. So that was great. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, you've seen a lot of changes in the music business, you know, technology, touring, social media, to even the business side of how songwriters and musicians and tours make money. You saw the heyday of the music industry. So what's your take on everything now? Well, I think it's kind of all kind of blown up right now. And I think that when the dust settles, there will be some stability and consistency in how music is delivered to people. I mean, iTunes is a good example they figured out how to monetize people buying singles. Right. Because you know, prior to that, we had Napster, where basically everybody was getting it for free. For free, yeah. And look, I think it's great that when you can get music to people, period. But the time and money invested in making records is substantial. Yeah. So, you know, there's got to be some kind of compensation. The people, I think, that are really getting the short end of the stick right now are the songwriters, yeah. and that's really unfortunate. That seems you know, to be I, where it squeezes, is right there. It does. Yeah. Well, partly because, if you look at it over the last decade or so, CDs, at one point, were almost 20 bucks, which is too much. Yeah. And the record companies should have seen that and should have adjusted that. Yeah, they were trying to and milk they, it for all it was worth were, at that time. They were, and I think they got greedy, and I think it kind of bit them. And then on the other hand, you had Napster coming along. I mean, I remember family dinners during that period where we had the cousins going, hey, I got all these songs for free, oh, and yeah. we're like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but, you know, it seemed like the right thing. You know, I don't think anybody thought that they were stealing music. And again, because songwriters aren't out touring for the most part, that income stream has to be regulated in some way. Mm-hmm. So... I think that there's different legislation in place, and I think that most people in public totally understand now that if you love art, you should pay for it. Exactly. Whether, I mean, I always laugh when I say, you got a doctor friend, come on over to dinner tonight, and after dinner, yeah, you might like resetting this broken foot, you know? Exactly. <laughs> I know. It's so true. More tales of the music biz here on the Mulberry Lane Show with Jeff Hanna of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. You'll continue to hear more from Jeff. Keep it right here with your radio sisters. Baby, get ready. Ooh, ooh. You and me go fishing in the dark. Lying on our backs and counting the stars where the cool grass grows. Bringing you 
the stories behind the songs. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Right now you're hearing from Jeff Hanna of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band talking about 50 years in the music business here on the Mulberry Lane Show. And doing it for 50 years probably uh, got it down to a science now. I, you know, science isn't a word I would usually apply to our band. But, uh, yeah, we have a rhythm and a routine, you know, that definitely gets us from point A to point B. Right. Really, the hardest thing about being out here is the travel, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. you're waking up in a different hotel room, and it's a little disconcerting. You get up in the middle of the night, and you're groping around like, where's the bathroom? Where's the air conditioner, you know? Because <laughs> it's in a and different I, place than it was the it, night before, right? Yes, it is. You get to know the layout at the Hampton Inn and the Holiday Inn, you know, you kind of know where it's <laughs> Pretty consistent. Uh-huh. Exactly. But you don't go home and call room service. That doesn't work. That right? doesn't work, yeah. <laughs> That's over when you're back home. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now the song, God Bless the Broken Road. Yeah. That finally found its way to a Grammy in 2005. Yeah. So Thank talk about much. the inspiration for that song. Well, I wrote that with my good friend Marcus Hummond and another fellow named Bobby Boyd. And really, my inspiration personally was when my wife and I got married. Matresa Bird is her name. She's a brilliant songwriter. Yeah, she's written lots of amazing, amazing songs. You know, everything from Strawberry Wine to uh, You and Tequila Make Me Crazy. Uh And a whole bunch in between, Wild Angels, Wrong Side of Memphis. You can feel bad for Patty Loveless. I mean, she had an amazing run, and she's still continuing. She's got a song on the new Kenny Chesney album. Okay, great. Uh, when we got married, we had both been married before. You know, but the idea that sometimes you go through these periods in your life, these blue periods in your life, and you're going, wow, this is just, I don't think this is ever going to work out right. Especially in terms of relationships at that point. You know, we were both kind of reticent about getting married (laughs) but then we did and it worked out great and Marcus and I were talking about that he said well I've got this idea that I started and it was inspired by this conversation that he had with his friend Bobby and that was Broken Road we worked on it for two different sessions and when we finished it we thought there is a really great personal song but we didn't really look at it like wow this is going to be a hit okay so you almost thought it was too specific or too personal to you yeah, that's what we thought. And we thought we had done our job as songwriters by having an impact as far as, like, taking a point of view and putting it to music and, you know, kind of telling a tale, you know? Okay. And then we started playing the song live, and people were coming up going, wow, could we sing that song at our wedding? And yeah. we like, wow. So we felt that impact right away. Our band recorded it first on an album called Acoustic that came out in 94, and it didn't really make much of an impact more of a singer-songwriter record okay. than a commercial album. Right. And then Marcus recorded on his first album on Columbia, same deal, he didn't have a whole lot of chart success. Mm-hmm. And then it was recorded by a girl named Melody Crittenden, who was on Asylum Records in Nashville, and she put it out, and it was headed up the charts, it was in the 40s or 50s, and her record company went out of business. Oh. <laughs> it, it stalled out, this mm-hmm. is in, I think this is around 1996, maybe, the one thing that it did do, it ended up on a very popular TV show at the time, Dawson's Creek. Okay. Yeah. So that song was on hold by uh, like a hundred different artists. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Some amazing folks. I mean, there were a lot of folks that had talked about doing it. Bonnie Ray at one point was interested in mm. the song. Bette Midler, Faith Hill, oh gosh, Leanne Womack came really close to recording the song, although... She had heard that it had been recorded by another artist, and so she changed her mind at the okay. last minute. All 
these folks. And in the meanwhile, Marcus had been writing with the guys from Rascal Flatts for all of their albums. They had recorded some of Marcus's tunes on the first two records that they did. Mm-hmm. And they were finishing an album called Feels Like Today. And they decided they wanted to go back in the studio and record a couple more songs. Okay. And they had looked at Broken Road for all three albums, and they finally just decided the time was right. Yeah. So they cut our song. I was really surprised. I got this call from a session musician that played on the record. and said, hey, man, I played on your song today. And I said, with who? Brooks and Dunn? I said, no. <laughs> Rascal Flatts. I said, wow. And the next thing we knew, you know, we thought this is an album cut, and that's great that they recorded it. And then we got the call a week later that it's the next single. It's the single. Oh, wow. Yep. Awesome. Yep. And then that went on to win the Grammy. It did. Well, it won the Grammy for me and Bobby and uh, Marcus for songwriters. For songwriters. It actually won the Grammy for Song of the Year, and it was nominated for the ACM Song of the Year. It was nominated for the CMA Song of the Year, and we didn't win either of those, but we got to go to the shows, and it was really fun. Yeah. Uh, well, that's and, uh, another song that had a lot of life in it, too. Oh, a lot of life in it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you go on YouTube, I think there's about 10 pages of people singing it on there, which is kind of fun to see. Do you actually watch them? I do. Okay. I, you know, that's so flattering. Yeah. You know, yeah. To hear cool. all these people singing your song. And when we do it live, it's great for our band because we recorded it first. I tell a little of that story, the abbreviated version, and, and basically uh, we just do it with an acoustic guitar and, and two vocals and a harmonica. It's really oh, fun. I bet that's, that's awesome. It's pretty neat. Yeah, thanks. You're hanging out with Jeff Hanna of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band here on the Mulberry Lane Show. So have you and Matresa ever co-written together? Oh, yeah. You do that. Yeah, we've right. written a bunch of stuff together, okay. but we've never written a hit song together. Okay. So, uh, That's yet to come. <laughs> well, you know, interestingly enough, when we first got together, we were just friends, and we got together to write songs okay. together. But as our relationship developed, we, you know, hung out more, but we wrote fewer songs. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the relationship took a turn there. You know? yeah, you're probably, from the business to the personal. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you probably yeah. would sit down to write a song, and then you just end up having a really good conversation. Or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the PBS Pledge special, you guys did that at the Ryman Auditorium. So talk about that experience. Well, that was great. That special was recorded with the 50th, you know, in mind. That was kind of the kickoff. Yeah, it was. We taped it in September, and then they started here, I guess, in March. You know, we all love PBS. We got with some guys that were PBS producers in Nashville, and we started talking about this concept. And basically, it just came down to, let's call our friends that have had a musical and personal impact on our band in this 50-year career. And we just started making phone calls, and it was very obvious to us who we wanted to round up. You know, we actually, I mean, there's lots of folks that I would still like to do something similar with because it's a long list. I bet. But um, that night was great because we had our old friend John Prine and Jackson Brown who played with our band briefly at the very beginning of okay. our career. Oh, yeah. And that was fun. And Allison Krauss and Rodney Prowl, Jerry Jeff Walker and uh, Vince Gill and Jimmy Ibbotson that played in our band for a long time as well came back and did a few tunes with us that night. And some great super pickers as well, Sam Bush and uh, Jerry Douglas and Byron House. So we had like some deeper firepower musically that night as well. What a cool And it was great. It was sold out. We played for three hours and then whittled it down for the 60-minute special that's on PBS. Mm -hmm. But there's also, as part of their pledge drive, a 90-minute 
DVD that you can okay. purchase, which all goes to PBS, which is great. Which is yeah. awesome. Oh, so, yeah, that was a wonderful way to, you know, it was, it was a family reunion for us. Yeah, it to cap off 50 years. Yeah. Yep, pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Well, Jeff, we want to thank you so much for joining our show. It's been a pleasure talking with you, hearing about the music and the stories behind the music. We love it. It's really nice talking to you all. You know, and are you going to sing us off? <laughs> <laughs> we just sing in. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Well, you guys have a great day. Thanks. Nice Thanks, Jeff. All right, nice talking to you. Jeff Hanna with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Going from a best-selling music artist to a best-selling author. We'll be right back with John Hart and his latest thriller, The Hush. Keep it here on the Mulberry Lake Show. Every long lost dream led me to where you are. Others who broke my heart, they were like northern stars. Pointing me on my way into your loving arms. This much I know is true That God blessed the broken road That led me straight to you We've got you covered. The Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, New York Times bestselling and Edgar award-winning author John Hart has a new book, The Hush, which built on the world he created in his book, The Last Child. Well, John is here to chat about his latest thriller, available on DVD, and fill you in on what drives his creativity. Welcome, welcome to the show, John Hart. Hey, guys. That was fun. Good. Great to have you. How are you? Good. How are you? Hey, I'm, I could be happier. I mean, it's launch day, uh, national rollout for the new book, um, and I'm on the show with you guys. I, I really can be happier. It's perfect. Awesome. Okay, first talk about what inspired the story, The Last Child. What inspired the world? Okay, so The Last Child was my third novel that came out in 2009. One of my favorites for a long time for a great number of reasons. It's always funny how one book leads into another and, and where these story ideas come from. Uh, it actually began with the book prior to that, which was called Down River. And I wrote a three-page introduction about that protagonist coming home after long exile, walking into a storm of emotion and conflict I won't bore you with. But there's a scene in the first few pages where he stops at the river. And he's taking a breath before crossing the river that defines his home county. He's just gathering himself before he returns to all the troubles he left behind. And he meets this young boy there. And the boy is down at 6 in the morning. He's coming down to check some fishing lines he put out with his father the night before. And I wrote the boy just to be a foil for this other guy's lost childhood. Okay? okay? He's coming home. This is a childhood innocence that he lost. And I described that boy as a, a dusty boy in a soft yellow world, and that's what he was, this soft, gentle world in this safe place. And I love that boy so much, the way he played in those first few pages, I decided right then and there that I wanted him to be the main character in my third novel, okay. uh, which was The Last Child. So as you created this character, that's when he grew into his own book. You knew it. Yeah, you know, there was an immediate, visceral response to this character. I could see him in, in full. I knew exactly uh, what he was. And then the only question became, what am I going to do to this poor kid to make him desperate enough to drive an adult-themed thriller? But that's what I do. You know, I have to put people through their paces. Okay. So then you had to create this story around him then. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. So The Last Child, that was the next book, and it was purely his story. Okay. And The Hush, which is out now, and, and by the way, it's out in all formats, hardcover uh, as well as audiobook, ebook, is the same character 10 years later. He, so he's now a young man of 23 and, and a story that takes place 10 years after The Last Child. So okay, so now why did you jump the 10 years? Oh, well, that's a really fair question. The Last Child was a very personal book for me and very successful. I mean, it's 35 weeks on the bestseller list. It won my second Edgar, and it's very satisfying as the writer. Everything was in perfect place. And you're the only one that's gotten two Edgars, right? Two and two consecutively. The Edgars have been around for 75 years, I believe, so a couple others have done it. No one's ever done it for consecutive novels, um, which was kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I wanted to revisit that character but not disturb the world of The Last Child. And so if I make him an adult, I can write a book that is not going to in any way affect readers' perceptions of him as a 13-year-old boy, which is what he was in The Last Child. Okay, so then did you have to flesh out what happened just for yourself those 10 years? Oh, yeah, 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 for myself. And, of course, I give the readers just enough so that they can uh, understand without being overwhelmed. I mean, you never want to do an information dump uh, on the readers. You you have to keep the story moving. But, yeah, that was the easy part. The real trick was, you know, all the other things that go into a novel, but catching the reader up was easy, and mainly because I made a very conscious decision. I wanted this book to work as a standalone. You know, that just is a logical thing, right? I, I didn't want to limit myself to people that had read The Last Child. So this is accessible by anyone. You can pick this up and you won't be lost. Absolutely, yeah. Great. Well, right now you're listening to The Mulberry Lane Show, and we're talking with New York Times best-selling and Edgar Award-winning author, John Hart, and he's telling you about his latest thriller, The Hush. So now yeah. what drove you to the mystery genre in the first place? Well, I actually have a very, I think, fair answer to that question. I like to write about people in transition and people growing through hard things, and that can mean pain, loss, suffering, violence, you know, any of the things that you find in great mystery thrillers. And, and the reasons I like that is simply this. I think that character growth is very satisfying mm-hmm. for a reader, meaning as the story runs and the excitement happens uh, and the dramatic conclusions arrive, we want to see the characters growing through that story arc. So they're different on page 500 than they were on page 1. That makes them real to us. That makes the read satisfying. The best way to force that change on your characters is to turn up the heat, you know, and cook away the veneer that we all wear every day. And you get to see what they're really all about. I mean, are they going to make the hard choice the easy choice? Are they going to run or fight or protect their loved ones, or are they cowards at heart? I mean, you don't know until bad things start happening. So I, I like to put good people, mostly good, but some bad, uh, into really difficult circumstances and see what makes them tick. And that's the format that works best. So now as you're writing these characters, do they inform you of the decisions they'd make or do you write it? How do your characters develop? Well, let me tell you something. Most people would be amazed at how much power these characters have, right? You think the writer is in perfect control all the time, and that's not really the case. The characters do surprise, and, you know, often someone that's supposed to be a bit character becomes, in many ways, the beating heart of the story. Um, and that's because there is so much unexpected growth coming out of these characters. And this is the way I like to describe it when people can't get their head around how characters can make decisions. Let's say I'm 250 pages into a book, and I've got a million different decisions now laid out that has shaped these characters. Do they go left or right? Do they get out of bed or stay in bed? You know, do they shoot the guy or, or not? So we've got these decisions laid out, and if you ask a character to do something because you think it's a clever plot twist, 
and it goes against the history of these decisions, a part of your mind as a writer is going to recognize that false note. And you'll realize very quickly, you know, this character would never do that or would hesitate because it goes against this pattern that I've now established. So suddenly you have to reconsider, uh, okay, well, that's going to ring false. What is another path that this character might take? And in that way, they begin to actually make their own choices. Okay. Have you ever had a thought of something really bad, like one of the bad things happened to the character and then thought, oh, I just can't do that to them? Uh, Only on one occasion. In Redemption Road, my fifth novel, there was this great character. He's an 89-year-old lawyer, uh, Crybaby Jones, Faircloth Jones. And um, he stood up to a couple of thugs that were beating uh, a younger man that he knew and just got hammered for his trouble. I mean, he was way too old to be physically active in this manner. And um, I thought he probably should die. That, That probably should be the right course of action. I could not do it. I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't do it to the readers. He's such a lovable character. So he makes it to the end of the book because I just, I was too sorry. Oh, I couldn't do it. Oh, that makes me happy. Couldn't kill that old guy. Okay, well, I, be, I beat him senseless, but I couldn't kill him. Kill him off. Okay, well, John, we want to thank you so much for your time. The book's fantastic, and you can also listen to it on DVD as well. All formats. Yeah, and the narrator's fabulous, so check it out. He's great. Okay, the hush. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks, guys. New York Times bestselling author John Hart here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Be sure to check out his latest novel, A Thriller Called The Hush, now also available on audiobook. When we come back, you're going to meet Peggy Young. She wrote and recorded a very personal album based on her divorce from music legend Neil Young. Keep hanging out here with your radio sisters. Music, celebrities, and everything in between. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, after 37 years of marriage to music legend Neil Young ended in divorce in 2014, Peggy Young did what came naturally. She put her emotions into music, and what came out was her latest album, Raw. Now, Peggy joins your weekend right now along with her co-writers and legendary musicians, Spooner Oldham and Kelvin Holly, to give you a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the making of Raw. Welcome, welcome to the show, Peggy Spooner and Kelvin. Thank you, right? Wow, very nice. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, now, Peggy, this is such a personal album for you. Your journey through divorce and refining yourself. How did you get to the place where you could write about what was in your heart? Well, I probably started writing about, you know, my emotions and pretty much straight away after, you know, realized what was happening and, uh, you know, that our marriage was going to be, it had run its course. Is that easy for you to get to that place of total honesty? Well, I mean, you know, when I was writing, originally wrote a lot of stuff that was obviously, you know, just for me, you know, just to, like, get stuff out, you know. And then when I got together with Spooner and Calvin here and we we got together in a hotel room and just kind of, you know, worked for a few days and I didn't have a single melody. I didn't have anything but just this big old stack of words. And so, you know, we just created some songs out of all this words I had, which was about a year into the, you know, from the the, process. process. So uh, what did we come up with? Like about 10 songs and a couple few days there. And uh, then got into the studio and started recording them. And, you know, I really hope that this has that universal quality to it as well. So... 
because I know I'm not the only one who's gone through Absolutely. sorrow and loss and grief, whether it's, you know, divorce, whether it's death, whatever it is, it's part of the human condition, so. And having to reinvent yourself, yeah. too. So, yeah. Spooner and Kelvin, now this project seems like a labor of not just artistry and musicianship, but love and support. So, Spooner, in your words, what was this project like for you? Well, you, you hit on the word. I like their love. Uh, you know, we love Peggy. And uh, well, the project itself, Peggy just described, it was a cathartic uh, uh-huh. healing kind of process of injury or whatever. Kelvin and I just sort of did little duties to her uh-huh. sad and lonely words and tried to make it a little danceable. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Kelvin, how is this project unique for you? It was therapeutic for all of us, you know, because music is a healer. I mean, everybody knows that. I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to what the lyrics were saying. I was looking at the rhythm of the lyric. Uh And so I would just pick up the guitar and start playing a, a chord progression. And if the words fit, they fit. And then we would just work on that and I mean we wrote like 10 songs in like two days you wow. know? the three of you have known each other for so long so when you know you get into a, a writing session like that do things flow just pretty easy oh, well it just depends on the mood uh, but in our case at that particular time things were just pouring out you know uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, we came with a productive weekend, you know. Yeah, those are always so, great when you have those. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Singer-songwriter Peggy Young here on the Mulberry Lane Show talking about her brand-new album, Raw, written after her divorce from music legend Neil Young. Now, Peggy is here along with legendary musicians Spooner Oldham and Kelvin Holly. Now, Peggy, of your five albums, this is the first time you've assumed the production duties. So what was that like for you? Well, you know, I mean, I had a pretty clear vision of what I wanted the record to sound like. Uh And, you know, we started with one producer, didn't, you know, end up working out at the end of the day. And so then we switched, went back to uh, working with uh, Chad Haley, who'd done four of our five records. He's just a great recording engineer and mixer. And I think I gave him some production credit, too. He certainly deserved it. I was Uh meant to. If I didn't, I hope I did. (laughs) But, uh... (laughs) You know, because he really helped guide us sure. in uh, a really nice way. I really think it was kind of a survivor production, too, honestly. Uh-huh. We're a real collaborative band. You know, when it came to putting the horn section on, for instance, that was our drummer Phil Jones's call. I mean, he knows the horn section in L.A. I found the background singers just because it was somebody that I sang with on Prairie Wind or Nashville who'd moved to L.A. You know, so it just kind of worked out, just collaborated and, you know, ended up... And with, it came uh, together, yeah. And it, and it did come together, yeah. Yeah, with a lot of love, and you can tell that. Yeah, I felt that a lot, you know. I mean, it's a mutual, it's a little love fest in, yeah. the, in the studio there. It's just a darn love fest. Uh, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been great talking with all of you, and I think people will get a lot of healing from this album. Good, and it's hopeful. It's, uh, it ends on a hopeful note. That was my intention. Yes, and a good way to end the interview, too, on a thank hopeful you. note. Thank you. All right. Take thank care. you. That's singer-songwriter Peggy Young, along with legendary musicians Spooner Oldham and Kelvin Holly, here on the Mulberry Lane Show. I used to smoke my packs of cigarettes a day. It was the hardest thing to put them away. I drank four or five bottles of wine. I kept a glass in my hand all the time. 
Young for joining our show, along with legendary musicians Spooner Oldham and Kelvin Halley. Peggy, thanks for sharing your heart today and the emotions behind the new album, Raw, written in the wake of your divorce from Neil Young. This album will be very therapeutic for many listeners, for sure. Mm-hmm. Who else do we need to thank, Allie? Well, we got to thank Jeff Hanna with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Thanks, Jeff, for sharing your songwriting prowess, your journey, and a bit of your love story as well. Very cool stuff today. Mm-hmm. Love it. Who else do we need to thank, sisters? Well, we got to thank New York Times bestselling thriller author, John Hart. John, thanks for bringing your intriguing thriller to the show today. Mm-hmm. And everyone can pick up The Hush, either in book form or audio form. So get ready for some mysterious excitement in your life. All right. Okay, girls, that wraps up another show. You guys have to meet us here, same time, same place, next weekend. We already can't wait. We'll be waiting right here for you. Bye. Stay happy and stay blessed. Allie, don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap.